You're listening to Medicine for the Resistance. How are you, Harsha? Great to see you. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I hesitate to ask how are you to anybody these days. <sighs> right? But I'm it's, wishing warmth. It's been a week. Mm-hmm. A week, a month. How does that song go? A week, a month or two, maybe a year. (laughs) What I love about us is as a general, you know, is how we will always infer these pieces of humor. Um, We offer ourselves that grace of being able to, to laugh through the pain or the tears of what we're feeling is inevitable as well. Cause I know that it's been, I've been very quiet, um, I've needed to hold some space and just sit back. And Patty, your post, um, you know, Patty's always a a Twitter. Which one? (laughs) But the one that it was that really struck me, you inspired me actually, was the post that you put out about, you know, great that, you know, everybody's feeling the, the, you know, the pain and standing in solidarity, but do something. Mm. Oh, the white people, the sad white people in my mansion. Yeah, right. You're mm. going about the sad ones in, in your um, DMs and, and on your feed. And, and I thought for me, that was just, um, I was like, drop the mic because mm. Pat has spoken. It was so powerful. It was so powerful. And you really inspired me to offer that same space out and, and say that, you know, I think it's mm. great that we're all you know, reeling and and in the grief and all of that, but something has to be done. And I really appreciate you lending your voice and giving such clarity um, for all of us who are holding the space in this this movement here. Mm -hmm. It brought it home for me. It really Hmm. did. Well, thank you. Thanks. And I've been thinking, because I've been thinking about this conversation, um, you know, coming up with Hersha about here it is border and rule so good so so very good and i really love reading it back and forth um with mariam kaba's book Mm. because now you know and even with the residential schools these are part these are bordering regimes you know these Mm. all fit in you, you know with kind of because when you look at like you know like you talk about in your book you know which is the history of canada internal history of canada is one of imperialism and transgressing borders and, and you know because Canada and the U.S. both dealt with Indigenous nations like nations. Australia mm. did not make that mistake but Canada and the U.S. you know and, and so they transgressed all of our borders and absorbed us mm. and, and so these residential schools are mm. part of that bordering regime of mm. kind of containing controlling So just reflecting on that, you know, kind of having that in my mind as I was reflecting on on your book and just the way, Mm. the way these things are all so interconnected, right? Like domestic Mm -hmm. policy, foreign policy, these things are, they're just two sides of the same coin. They're just just part of the same process. Mm. So I guess, you know, being Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, in, in the midst of everything where you're at in BC, what prompted you, because you wrote Border Imperialism a number of years ago, so what prompted you to kind of take this look at border and rule? Mm, thank you for that. And again, just thank you both so much for, for being in this conversation with me. I have just such endless respects for both of you. Um, <laughs> thank you. So thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. Um, I'd, I'd say uh, what prompted me to... oh. Why does one write a book? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Why? I have things to say and I need more than 240 characters. Yeah, basically, I'm learning how long a process writing a book is. Yeah. Right? So, okay, so maybe a better question is, No. (laughs) how did this book change you? Mm. Maybe Ah, maybe, maybe Maybe that's a better question. Maybe that gets it more useful more useful ideas because I'm finding (laughs) I am a different person than the one who set out a year ago Mm. on this book that I'm writing Mm. um which the world is waiting for (laughs) 
I can send you a copy if you want to read yes. it. <laughs> yes. If you want to read it and have some thoughts for me, I'd appreciate it. That would be great. Um, but yeah, so how did this book change you? Because you, you mm. know, this, this has been a big deal for you, you know, border imperialism and these ideas. So how did this book change you? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. Um, I'd say how it, it changed me is for me, um, writing this book really, uh, you know, less so than than others who are, you know, say in academia and spend their time in the archives, if you will. Uh, for me, thinking about borders a little bit more transnationally, right, like not just the US and Canada, which tends to be our scope of reference a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. But to really think transnationally about, you know, Europe, about Australia, about other parts of the world, um, you know, about the Gulf states, India, Brazil, etc., um, really forced me to, to think about the world in a deeper way um, and in ways that are not simplistic, you know, not intending to reduce it to these are all the same, but to really look at how systems travel, even as they get adapted by their local context and local systems of power, just to be able to see how these systems traveled, because of course, colonizers literally traveled, right? Um, and enforced systems of, of imperial rule and colonial rule in different places. Um, and were the same colonizers often, you know, the British, the French, the Dutch, etc. Um, so that's, that's one piece in the ways in which that changed me was really not to, um, to kind of assume I know about the reality of the world without taking the time to, to learn um, about each place. And then also spending some time uh, in the archives and people who've, who've spent time in the archives to learn and think alongside, you know, like what was border formation in different places hundreds of years ago. How is border formation not only about this kind of contemporary history or moment, which we hear a lot about with like the migration crisis, the refugee crisis, um, but to think about this in the longevity of, of histories of settler colonialism, imperialism, enslavement, labor extraction and more. Um, so that really changed me. Like literally I, I feel like there was times where my, my brain was breaking with things I was learning and how to sit with making those connections in a way that um, honored and honors those histories and trajectories, um, but tries to weave them together still so that they're not siloed. So to, to do that work of braiding and weaving in ways that I hope um, does those living histories justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we do think of them often in silos, right? That's the way, mm -hmm. that's, the way th that's the way things are taught is... Mm -hmm. You know, this happens here and this happens here and this happens here. And we don't like even the way we talk about the Wild West and mm. like, we, you know, like what we've talked with um, Carrie Lee Merritt and, and yep. uh, a, a few others just have a disconnected way that even national histories are taught is mm. just so unhelpful. And then to think about like the books that were written at that time right? Like the literature of that period and the politics of that period and all of those things, how they're, you know, how, how they're connected. Like we see it now in movies, right? Like we see, I'm, I'm just reading Jesus and John Wayne right now. And so it's talking about, you know, kind of how John Wayne really, you know, influenced the evangelical movement and they really traded on that image to create this new, this new version of patriarchy. There's just stuff. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. So you many, sorry, go ahead, Karen. No, no, I, I just, I, that book, Jesus and John Wayne, just, <laughs> my, I'm listening and absorbing, but that, that may be one you have to put out there too. That's kind of interesting. And it, and it calls in, it calls in for me how deeply these, these thoughts, these ideas, these influences can change the trajectory of how we sit in our truth and reality. You know what I mean by mm. that? Like, like that, you know, this idea of, you know, John Wayne, who was supposed to be every man, you know, um, rugged and, and sweeping over the, the landscape of goodness and truth. And yet when you look at him, he really epitomizes the ideal of the colonizer. But we mm. hold these things up and allow it to shape the very fabric of, of a movement of, of a whole 
um, space. And I think that reminds me of when we talk about this idea of borders, how we can get closed in um, and separated from our truth simply because it's been um, designed by, you know, people who have decided this is what it's going to look like. And I, I often think about that when we think about the state of the world and the fact that, you know, certain parts of this world have been constructed like very much Africa and places in Africa because we know the resources are valuable and it's, it's by design to keep them fractionalized and in um, spaces of war because it's easy to extract and rape a country when you're worried about feeding yourselves. You know, like the, these contrasts that we bring into a reality and into a truth so that, you know, halfway around the world, we can sit in comfort mm. by this strategic border. And let's mm. not even talk about the, how, you know, when you designed, they designed Africa, the fractures, these small little colonies or the small little countries are the borders that were put up around them was all systematically by divine, by divine um, design to keep mm -hmm. them conquered and ruled. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, um, I often wonder who, how can somebody be so diabolical? You know, like how does mm -hmm. that, thoughts even begin to become such an expansive space and yet it is and I I, I marvel in that a little bit or mm. I, I in riff your, in that yeah. in your book you talk mm. about um how borders just to kind of build off what Carrie's saying how, yeah. how borders create cheap labor mm. Mm -hmm. Which was really interesting. I mean, I've, I've, I've been, you know, kind of loosely involved with, you know, with, with migrant more, you know, kind of supporting my friends who are, who mm -hmm. are you know, very involved with uh, work organizing alongside um, migrant workers, which in, in Niagara is largely agricultural workers, but uh, mm -hmm. also some tourists and, and care workers as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was really interesting to me. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't kind of thought I know that migrant workers are easily exploited and, and kept mm -hmm. but I hadn't right. really thought about how borders themselves create and maintain cheap labor. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And building off of um, that question, Patty, and Carrie, what you were saying too, like if we even think about, um, you know, just to zoom out for a moment, if we even think about the so-called global north and global south, which we know aren't geographies, right? But it's like the political north and the political south entwined in these histories of imperialism and extraction and enslavement and colonialism and, and everything. And the partitions, as you're talking about, Carrie, those deliberate partitions, those borders that were enforced onto, you know, peoples and territories to create these divisions. Um, you know, one of, certainly not the only one, but one of the pillars of, in our contemporary era that maintains that political apartheid between the South and the North is borders, right? Like, what creates the fortress of Europe or, you know, Australia, what keeps Australia as Australia and Europe as Europe and Canada as Canada and US as US is bordering systems, right? Is to say that we are us and the rest of the world that we know as a, the global South, the so-called third world is maintained through borders um, where, you know, people's life expectancy. And as you were saying, Patty earlier, you know, even the ways in which indigenous nations borders and territories have been violated, right? It's not just the Canada-US border, it's all of the borders of multiple indigenous nations. Um, those violations of sovereignty maintain that wealth, right? Mm -hmm. And literally define people's life expectancy, like where you are born in the world and under what conditions determines how you will live and borders maintain that system by, pro like by you know, prohibiting people from moving under free conditions to change those realities. Um, and in terms of, of labor, um, one of the ways in which, you know, within this system of, I would argue, you know, mass global political apartheid, um, the ways in which borders maintain cheap labor um, is really they, they segment, you know, so-called citizen workers who are not a homogenous group. Of course, you know, people mm -hmm. who labor are stratified across race, indigeneity, uh, those who are black from those who are non-black from gender class and more but we can add one of those is citizenship 
right? Like if you are a non-citizen worker, whether you are a migrant worker or an undocumented worker, um, then your exploitation is literally sanctioned by the state. It's not an issue of like a bad employer. It's not like, oh, this is a bad boss. Um, it allows bad bosses to survive and thrive, right? By basically saying, because you are a pool of non-citizen workers, you will not be granted even the basic rights of the state, which is, you know, minimum wage, access to healthcare, um, access to EI, access to unionization, right? The right to collective bargaining. And again, I know those are hollow rights. I'm not intending to romanticize them, but to say that non-citizen workers are completely outside that possibility even. Um, and really mm -hmm. when we even think about migrant workers, you know, to me, migrant workers is a euphemism for third world worker. That's basically mm -hmm. what that's intended to be, right? Like the jobs that can't be outsourced, right? We outsource manufacturing. We outsource who makes our cheap clothing. We outsource who mass manufactures and, you know, our, our cell phones, the resources and minerals that are extracted from the Congo, to make iPhones, which are then mass produced in factories in China, both places where peoples are subjected to different yet deathscapes, right? Like the mass suicides of workers in China, um, the resource wars, as Carrie, you were talking about in the Congo, for example, um, you know, that, and so the kind of labor that can't be outsourced in that way, like domestic work, like agricultural work, we insource that labor but it's flip sides of the same coin, right? Insourced migrant workers are the flip side of outsourced cheapened labor. And I think what borders do is to create cheapened labor because there is no such mm. thing as cheap labor. All labor is valuable. All labor should be valued, but we know that there are conditions that create certain labor as devalued and as exploitable and disposable. And I think that to me is, you know, the crux of what migrant work in this country means. It draws on the legacy of the exploitation of, um, of settler colonialism, the extractions of settler colonialism, the histories of indentureship and enslavement. And now we've created basically indentureship 2.0, where when you are no longer needed, you are literally deported. You are not only just terminated, you are deported, expelled, completely mm -hmm. expelled. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's a euphemism for third world worker for how we view uh, third world work um, in this world and borders maintain that by basically saying, all right, you can't actually come here because that's the reality of border controls and that mass global system of apartheid. But if you do want to come, you will come under this unfree system of labor. Uh, where you will be exploited, where you, where that is the condition, right? That's not an exception. That is the condition of entry. Um, and Canada really is the expert in this model. Like, and that's the last thing I would emphasize is that Canada has developed and perfected this template. Um, you know, often we say, oh, it's worse in the United States because we don't have undocumented workers here. Or, oh, it's worse. Like the kafala system in the Gulf Arab states is often presented as, you know, uniquely immoral. Um, but if you go to these kind of international in the international arena, um, Canada is actually the model, right? Where it's like, oh, look, Canada doesn't have undocumented laborers. I mean, first of all, we do, but we don't to the degree of the United States because we've perfected this model where when people's labor is no longer needed, they don't become undocumented. They're actually deported. Canada gets rid of that labor. Right. With no mercy. There's no mercy here. Yes. Very real. Yeah. And, you know the part that stands out in terms of that no mercy carry that you're mentioning is how stark that is when we think about our healthcare system, right? Mm -hmm. Like Canada is praised for universal healthcare. We know that that's a dismal, like a, a devastatingly dismal by design reality for indigenous nations, right? Like it has always struck me that of, you know, of the four key areas that the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls focused, one of them was healthcare. One of the key areas of violence against Indigenous women and girls and trans and two-spirit people was the Canadian healthcare system, the system that we praise around the world, which we know is systemically racist and a pillar of ongoing genocide. And parallel to that is the reality for migrant workers who don't have access to full healthcare and where medical deportation is a reality, where, where you can no longer work, you don't get healthcare, 
you actually get deported out mm-hmm. in a, you know, on a medevac plane where you can't even heal and then, no, you know, not that you should heal and then be deported, but again, mm-hmm. that no mercy. Well, they will literally spend the money on putting you on like, you know, a medical flight out just to get you out as soon as possible, right? Like that, that no mercy um, has an embodied, it's like an embodied reality, right? And, and the number of especially migrant farm workers um, who have it's, who have sustained injuries while working in Canada and then are deported out, um, or migrant workers who have died, like working in the tar sands, have died working in the tar sands, doing that you know that horrific, ecologically destructive, genocidal work. And when they die in those tar sands mines, their families have to pay for their bodies to come back, you know? And so it's just, it's, it's no mercy, as you say. And, and that, that, that extraction of labor is, um, is a function of racial capitalism and global apartheid that bordering regimes really sustain. Mm-hmm. And then the language you know, I, that um... we use to talk about it, right? Like politically and socially, the mm-hmm. language, the language that we use to, you know, oh, they're, they're just here to do the jobs that Canadians don't want. Oh, thank you. Mm. We're so happy that you're here. You know, but just you know, mm-hmm. how, how invisible, you know, how, how, how invisible they are. You, you bring up a great point, mm-hmm. Patty. I, I really appreciate everything both of you are saying. And you're right, that invisibility. Mm-hmm. It brings me to two things I just want to mention. Um, one thing is with migrant workers, I realize I've got some layers wrapped up around it because my grandfather had a, a very big family and uh, we, we are a very big family. And he supported my, my family, my, my mother, my grandmother, all of those, you know, all my 11 uncles or 16 mm. uncles and aunts that I have by doing migrant work. Mm. And um, he would go to the States. I don't think he came to Canada. I think it was mostly mm. America that he went to, but, um, he had a stroke at about the age of my, he was about 59 when he had a stroke. Mm. And what um, they believe can't be proven is that he was exposed to Agent Orange Mm. as fertilizer in those fields back Mm. before, you know, or maybe it was known, but there was exposure um, that was given. And so, you know, it, it was a challenge for him. He survived the stroke, mm. came back fairly well, but was, you know, never physically the same. And it, it really, you know, I think about the sacrifices and this idea that we do have of that our work isn't, you know, other people's work who, who are doing the domestic or are doing mm. labor intensive um, positionings or the agriculture roles that aren't considered um, valuable or, or feasible in a society. And I, yet I think about when he got, you know, ill, it was a challenge for us as a family to have to rally around that. And there was Mm. no recourse, even though we knew that this was a potential, there was absolutely no recourse for it. And it, it brings, I, the layers for me show up as well as when I go to a grocery store here, Mm in my life, cause I live in Niagara region as well. And I'll go to one of our, our local grocery stores. And um, even now there's a few, the, the numbers aren't the same but there's a few migrant workers still hanging around. And before I used to get at least a, a, a hail up, a data, a, a, an mm. empress is normally the one I used to love. I get an empress um, that comes up. And, and what I'm recognizing is there's an evasiveness that I haven't seen before, because I, I believe that there have been some complaints made prior to about when, um, you know, these very chocolate uh, colored faces show up. And I, I, in a space that's not necessarily used to seeing them. And so this idea of invisibility, mm. this idea of not being able to be in the space of your truth I'm recognizing that I'm, I'm not getting as many emperors, maybe a few, but I have been having to initiate it. Normally I'll hail up my brothers and say, hey, 
you know, but before it would just be a look and a hail. I'm not seeing that the same way. And I think COVID may have wrapped this up as well. There's a, a they, in general, there seems to be like a, a new layer of fear in the space. Mm. Of, and I'm sure we know that we had epidemics running through a lot of the migrant spaces last year. But I also just feel like there's um, a deflatedness that comes from this ideas of borders, um, that comes from, I just have to breathe into it, that comes from the, the, the sense of knowing you can go and that you are dispensable. Mm -hmm. I still have my brothers though. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about Fortress Europe. I just want to kind of get into a little bit of the globalness of it because you mentioned the system, mm. um, the Kafala system, and you talk about Fortress Europe because people often look, and you mentioned this in the book too, you know, about how Europe is just taking in so many migrants, so many refugees, and, you know, being swarmed and overrun. And, you, you know, and of course, America is you know, happening to them, but that's not. Weirdly, it's not the way the media makes it look. <laughs> it is just really playing up these fears. Can you talk a little bit about, about Fortress Europe? Kind of because we have, mm. over here, we have this one idea in your book where you're talking, you know, kind of describing how it's really not as migrant friendly as it, uh, you know, as a PR machine would have us believe. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, this, the starting point in thinking and, and, thinking about anything to do with Europe um, is, of course, you know, the deep recognition of the ongoing ways in which the invention of Europe is completely contingent on colonization of the world, mm -hmm. uh, of enslavement, of indentureship, right? That the history of the world is not written through Europe because there are other histories in the world. So not, you know, to center European, not to reassert and recenter European history um, in that way, um, but to really break the walls of Europe's image of itself, right? And to really underscore that the very condition of possibility for Europe to exist as Europe uh, is this deeply violent histories that are also, of course, ongoing histories. They're not simply in the past. Um, and here, you know, any invocation of refugees welcome or the migrant crisis is so insidious when it comes to Europe, um, because not only does it absolve Europe of reflecting on this ongoing history, um, but again, the invocations of like new crisis or like, you know, this kind of European, this new European benevolence um, really erases the, the continuity of violence. Right, like that, the migration crisis or the refugee crisis, as we hear about in the news, um, really is a is a continuity of violence, of enslavement, of indentureship, of colonialism, of imperialism, and so that the erasure of that continuity of violence um, is something I want to start with, right? Because that's always missing in any discussions about um, the so-called migration crisis when it comes to Europe or you know even elsewhere, like the U.S., like you pointed out, Patty. Um, I think the, the piece that I would um, offer about Fortress Europe that I think is so crucial to understand um, is twofold. One is that, you know, just like Canada, the kind of refugees welcome is a myth, right? It's a myth that most of the people um, who are arriving to Europe are arriving in a state of inhospitality, if you will. Um, you know, people are facing precarious status are being deported. There's all kinds of internal border controls that people have to contend with, um, that that Fortress Europe is literally, you know, layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy, of regulations that seem just technocratic, but are deeply violent, um, you know, physical structures of walls. There are now more than, you know, the number of walls that are being built in Europe are six times that of the Berlin Wall, you know? So on the one hand, we talk about this post-Berlin wall welcoming era, but there are now six times as many walls in Europe than ever were when it comes to the, the size mm -hmm. of the Berlin wall and you know how that's wrapped up in an anti-communist propaganda. Mm 
um, reality for most colonial states, right? That the multiculturalism welcoming rhetoric. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Hersha, I don't mean to I don't mean to interrupt you, but could you explain that a little bit more? What you mean sure. by the walls? Yeah, yeah. So um, literally all across Europe, um, in countries across Europe, whether it's Greece, whether it's Croatia, whether it's France, um, countries all across Europe are literally building up walls, similar to you know the U.S.-Mexico Trump wall, physically building infrastructures of walling, of fencing, that if we were to add them all together are six times as long as the Berlin Wall. Um, so thousands and thousands of miles of walling and fencing, um, which is to then not even say, you know, that's like physical walling. And then of course, more dangerous than that arguably is this new era of technological walling, right? Where you don't even have a physical wall, but you have drone surveillance, smart borders, facial recognition technology, like this very dystopic present um, of, of border controls where people are being um, refused the ability to move. And this is most extreme in the peripheries of the EU, right? So the when, we, when I say Fortress Europe, it really is all of Europe but those that are the periphery countries that are maintaining the gate, right? So that people can't come into Europe, the countries that are the peripheral countries in the South and the West and the East um, really have to solidify their borders. And in fact, countries that are not currently in the EU or the Schengen zone that want to become part of the EU, um, in order to become part of the EU, one of the conditions is to demonstrate that you can successfully secure your borders against migrants and refugees. That is like one of the conditions of becoming part of the EU. Um, so, you know, a lot of what we hear in the media is like, oh, the EU, open borders, right? Like, I'm a French national, I can move to Germany. But again, that's just, you know, colonial privileges, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's, that's European privileges for white Europeans, you know, colonizers to be able to move within the context of mostly Western and Central Europe. Um, but for people trying to move into Europe, seeking refuge, seeking safety, overwhelmingly from South Asia, the Sahel region, and across Africa, through the Middle East, that's not the reality. People are dealing with the world's deadliest border. The Mediterranean is the world's deadliest border, where more people die than any other border in the world trying to cross. Um, so that's the inhospitable reality of, of what people are dealing with. Um, the second part that I think doesn't receive a lot of attention and that I tried to underscore in border and rule um, is how border outsourcing is actually increasing the technology. That was really of, interesting. Yeah, and for me, mm -hmm. and we're seeing this now around the world, right? Like we just saw this in the US where on the one hand, everyone's praising President Biden, like liberals are praising President Biden for saying he's not gonna continue with Trump's border wall. But what he is doing, I would argue, is equally, if not far more dangerous, which is making deals with Mexico, with Guatemala, with El Salvador, with Honduras. And we're seeing these images, right, making deals with these countries to say, we will pay you if you enforce your borders. Mm -hmm. So we don't want we don't need to build the border wall because we'll just pay other countries to do our dirty work. And we're seeing these images now of you know, Mexican authorities, for example, tear gassing and stopping caravans from Central America. And this really um, started in Australia and Europe. So Europe has really built up this, this, this concept of border outsourcing since the 1990s. And the frontiers of border militarization, I would argue in the, around the world are no longer you know, US and Canada or US and Mexico border or Fortress Europe or Australia. It's countries like Libya, like Sudan, like Papua New Guinea, like Nairu, like Mexico, like Turkey, all countries in the so-called global south who for different reasons, I don't want to simplify, but who for different reasons are forced to and accept money from the imperial centers of the world to fortress and fortify their borders. Um, and some of the deadliest border securitization that is happening is happening as a result of the EU, the European Union, basically making it a condition of every single trade and aid agreement that they make 
with countries in the Middle East and countries in the Sahel region of Africa, that those countries will prevent migration into Europe. Really? Mm. Oh, every single trade and aid agreement. And so, of course, we know that aid is already a result of underdevelopment, right? Like forced underdevelopment because of these histories of imperialism. And now we have imperialism being maintained by saying, all right, we'll make a trade deal. But as a condition of this trade deal, you have to accept us building a detention center in your country. You have to accept that we're gonna put boots on the ground in your country to prevent migrants and refugees. And as the Mediterranean is the world's deadliest border, what is catching up to that in the past, you know, since 2015, since the so-called migrant crisis globally being declared, is that now one of the world's deadliest borders is through the Sahel region in order to even make it to the Mediterranean. So even as the Mediterranean is so deadly where it's estimated that one in four people die and that death is preventable, right? Like it's a, it's a devastating death that, that states enforce. It's a border killing. Recent estimates are that one in two people are dying crossing the Sahel region to even make it to the Mediterranean because the militarization of the Sahel region of Africa is being completely funded by the EU. So those horrific stories that we hear about in Libya, for example, of detention centers, of torture, of enslavement that's happening in Libyan detention centers of Africans from over 26 countries who are in Libya, trapped in Libya, trying to cross into Europe. A large part of that is funded by the EU. The EU pays Libyan state authorities, pays Libyan paramilitaries, pays the Libyan Coast Guard in order to create this horrific, torturous daily condition. And so that really is Fortress Europe. It's both the solidification of Europe across its borders and it's border outsourcing to the point where NATO warships now patrol and interdict and stop people on the move. Um, and that I think really is um, what we need to be paying attention to, right? Because a lot of times we, we think about border controls just as like what's happening on the border, mm -hmm. but it's multiplying, right? It's multiplying and our governments are paying for this to happen around the world and using these ongoing imperial relationships to enforce this violence all around the world. Um, and that really, to me, is like, that's the crisis. You know, the crisis is not people on the move. The crisis is states enforcing such immense violence on people at a scale that we can't even fully comprehend. Okay, let, let's just, I'll, I don't know about you, but I, I need to take a deep breath. <laughs> um, you're you're dropping. Yeah. Right, you're you're dropping um, some deep awareness. I, you know, um, deep deep awareness to some things that are connecting the dots around things that we we really do get in fragments. And I'm I am just um, you know taking in what you're saying, and then thinking about this added piece now when we think about that we have this pandemic mm. now harsha has the has the pandemic then allowed for us to turn away from really being able to look at this the scope and scale of this and or is it just um a, another excuse or way that they can exacerbate they can continue the process on what are your thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah, I think exactly both of those. I think it's given um, a lot of people uh, a reason to turn away. I mean, we're in an era of literal global vaccine apartheid, right? Mm -hmm. Like where we, uh, where, you know, again, where I know we is, is segmented across a lot. Um, we is not homogenous, um, but generally, you know, individually, we can all sit with some comfort about being vaccinated while the rest of the world has literally been uh, thrown into an ongoing deathscape. Um, you know, India, Brazil, South Africa, in particular, continuing to fight 
for equitable vaccine access um, and not, you know, not having that, right? But we, um, I think we've largely turned away from that reality um, that we are in a, in a time of, of growing apartheid, like entrenched being even further. This is an additional way of, of um, inflicting violence on peoples. Um, and absolutely, you know, I think the pandemic has both securitized borders because, you know, it becomes an easy way for states to say, oh, we got to shut down, right? Like the equivalent of stay-at-home hoarders is that we need to close down the border, um, you know, to the point where people have literally been, you know, again, in the Mediterranean and at all borders um, have had the doors shut on them, have, have had borders literally shut on them, including, you know, when ships have been on the verge of sinking and boats have been on the verge of sinking. No states have taken them in, citing the pandemic, even though, of course, there's no correlation, right? Like saving people's lives is not correlated to the pandemic. And of course, it's a scapegoat. It fits into the, the general scapegoating um, of anti-Asian racism and more to say migrants and refugees are carrying disease, so-called carriers of disease. That's a long trope, right? Like uh, as you know, the, the trope of being disease carriers. When in fact, we know that the overwhelming majority of COVID transmission, especially last year in the early days of the pandemic, were a result of luxury travel, right? Like the flow of luxury and business travel. It had nothing to do with refugees and migrants whose travel is essential or whose movement, I should say, it's not travel, whose movement is essential. Um, there's also, I think it's exacerbated and revealed the contradictions of the border. So just to take the Canada-US border as an example, um, the Canada-US border has been closed to refugees. Most Canadians don't know this or think about this or care about this. Um, you know, so refugees have not been able um, to seek refuge with some minor exceptions in Canada. Um, but <laughs> Canada Border Service Agency has no problem still deporting people out of the country, right? So the border is close to people coming in, but there is apparently no issue with deporting people out. In Guatemala, in the early days of the pandemic, one fifth of all reported cases in Guatemala last year um, were as a result of deportations from the United States. Like literally the virus is being exported out into countries who have, you know, weaker health systems, right? As a result, again, of these legacies of imperialism. And the other contradiction, but I would argue it's not a contradiction, it really reveals the nature of the border, mm -hmm. um, is that migrant workers can come in, right? Because we still need to maintain our food supply chain. We still need cheapened labor. And, you know, we continue to have deaths of migrant workers as a result of COVID um, every week. Patty, as you pointed out, right, like the work that that Justice for Migrant Workers and Migrant Workers Action Network has been doing and Migrant Rights Network has been doing is just bearing witness and making us all know that the deaths of migrant workers are continuing, even, even as some of us are cheering for vaccinations, right, that they continue to be impacted. So the border um, reveals itself, right, like the border is, is fluid, it's, it's, um, it's actually permeable. So capital can move. Those who, those who facilitate capital can move, but those who are undesirable are shut out and expelled out. Um, and that's, that's what the pandemic's done everywhere. Yeah, Nora Loretto tweeted out one day, all of, all of the exceptions to, you know, to this closed border. You know, all, you know there, there's just, I think there are like 26 or 27 exceptions. Mm. Um, you know, to this closed borders, like really the only people who can't travel are, you know, people seeking asylum and people who want to go shopping. That's mm. about it. Everybody, you know, almost anybody else can travel. And, and like, this is the list of people who don't have to quarantine. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not only that they can cross the border, they don't even have to quarantine, you know, because apparently the virus won't infect other people as long as you come in under these conditions. But it's just, so arbitrary I mean mm -hmm. well, like you like you say it, it's not arbitrary it's not it you know it's not contradictory it's just revealing mm -hmm. what the priorities are and who these and who these priorities are for mm -hmm. and, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh the movie Godspell but I just keep thinking you, you know I even quoted mm -hmm. a, a little reference in the essay I wrote you know like who is the sand for the sun and the, you know mm -hmm. who is the land for the sun and the sand for it's it's for the best it's not 
it's not it's not for the rest of us and it, it's always mm. been it's always been that way and then these things happen and they just kind of you know bring it up into sharp relief and we keep deciding mm-hmm. you know like what happened you, you know uh last week and you know in, in you know, a few days in Kamloops is you know these things just keep resurfacing and we keep having to decide mm. who do we want to be what kind of people what kind of people do we want to be what do what do we want to do um mm. In, at the beginning of at the beginning of your book and 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 I you, you know you quote Sarah Ahmed and it mm. took me a little while to get used to the way she plays with words at first I will admit I found it kind of annoying <laughs> but then I got used to it and I really like it now because mm. we something and then she'll just kind of play with all of the different meanings of this word and mm. so you start seeing well you, you know because what I'm thinking about is when you're talking you, you know you talk about strangers and, mm. and she writes about, you know, strangers or, you know, those who are made strange and, you know, the way they're rendered into strangers. And it was just such a, such a neat little, yeah, like I said, I, I, at first I didn't like it, but now I really do. I really mm. enjoy the way she, I really enjoy the way she plays with her. She um, grew up. Yeah. yeah well, it made she, me actually, when you, when you were talking ahead. about the way in which she talks about stranger and, you know, I, I referenced it in the, in the context of, um, of immigration, right? Like how, yeah. who do we even recognize as being strangers in the context of immigration being deeply racialized? Um, but it also then made me think about stranger danger in the context of how we talk about gender-based violence, Yes. right? Knowing how violence actually in, you know, exists in deeply intimate spaces, um, but it's easier. It's easier to, to talk about stranger danger um, when we're talking about gender-based violence, right? And that of course being racialized and classed and more. Um, but that's when you're talking about thinking about her words, that's something that I that I thought about in in, in the ways in which she talks about strangers um, was the correlation between immigration and race. And then also the ways in which we think about stranger danger when we think about gender based violence. Yes. And yeah. what that what so, sorry, when you mentioned that it, it really um, brings up for me how all of these things are so interconnected mm, and mm-hmm. and because we are you know you're, you're we're we're in the space of all of it you know when we think about you know intimate partner violence when you think about borders when you think about migrant workers when you think about stranger danger mm-hmm. they feel so separate and sometimes we look at them through these silos but when you are allowed a minute to step back and have such a brilliant mind like you do, Harsha, Harsha, it's 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 incredible how you've put the dots together. And when what what I'm curious about is, you know, Patty, you just mentioned it. You know, what kind of world do we want to live in, hmm. and what kind of people are we? But here's where I am. Maybe it's just I'm in my feelings in the last week. So maybe this is where this is coming from. But I sit down and I feel like this picture is so infinitely out of our control. Like somehow there is this grand design that keeps repeating the patterns despite our greatest efforts. Mm -hmm. And what is the end game around that? You know, how do we really you know, put the spoke in the wheel, you know, or, or stop or put a cog in the wheel so that this is not the truth of it. It, it, it just keeps happening like our 215 in, uh, in the residential center. How do we stop this? How do we stop it? Hmm. We're listening, Harsha. How do we stop it? no tell us what to do it's uh <laughs> n- no i just i want to um sit with the immensity of of that you know and i i deeply appreciate that because i i think probably many of us are also at the and you know patty you've been tweeting this so you know so beautifully and generously and and clearly is that we've known all of this. And if we haven't known, we should know. Right. Um, and, you know, Carrie, when, you know, earlier before we started, when, when you cited Patty's quote around like, what's the action, right? What are we going to do um, around this? And, you know, your earlier question, Patty, about why'd you write a book? And for me, it's kind of weird because I, you know, part of me is like, why do you bother writing a book? It's all been said before. Like, 
we need to do things. We don't just, you know, need to read more things. But of, of course, that's a simplistic answer. We also need to, we need to learn. We need to take the time to learn. Um, I think, you know, uh, maybe what I can just offer in a humble way is what works for me. <laughs> I, I can't presume to know what that answer is for other people. Um, I think what we do is one that we don't, we can't do anything alone. And I think that may sound cliche, but we are so deeply ingrained in individualism, which is not to say we're not all individual people. I don't mean us in our beautiful individualities, um, but I mean individualism in the kind of, you know, neoliberal austerity capitalist way and colonial way of not thinking relationally, of not thinking that we have responsibilities to each other or kinship to each other or to the earth. Um, and I strongly believe that there is no liberation in isolation. It's not possible um, that we cannot leave anyone behind at all on this planet, like not just us, whatever that us is, however we border us, but really, you know, thinking expansively. Um, and so, you know, I think, and that's hard work, you know, it is just like genuinely hard work to know how to work with other people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, years ago, there's a member of native youth movement, Joaquin Cienfuegos, um, who said something that has stuck with me for literally 15 years, uh, which is, you know, he said, we need to learn how to be human again. Mm -hmm. And I think about that a lot. Like we need to learn how to be human again, which for me is not about, um, you know, assuming a unity that is false, but how to be human again, to transform these deep divides that are deeply entrenched, that we're all situated in differently. Um, and I'm not talking about some kind of universal humanism, but I'm talking about really how to be human with one another. Um, and so I think that's deeply hard work. And, you know, here, Mariam Kaba, who reminds us hope is a discipline, I know, Patty, you, you read those two books alongside um, and that work is collective. I think that's one thing. And I think, you know, the Zapatistas would remind us that we're building many worlds in one world. So part of it is letting go of the idea that there is one solution, right? That we have to figure out ways to coexist that work for different people. So it's not going to be a cookie cutter kind of approach. It really will be many worlds in one world um, that pays you know, attention to and acknowledges the many different ways of living, because of course, that's what colonialism intends to do, right? One of the many ways in which it imposes domination is a one size fits all, is a you must produce, you must look this way, you must, you know, be this way, rather than acknowledging the deep, you know, diversity in its truest sense, not the multicultural, mm -hmm. shallow sense, but diversity in its deepest, you know, human form. Um, and I think maybe the, the last thing I would say is, you know, for a long time, a long time, um, as many others probably have as well, I really wanted to find things that were tangible to do. And of course we need tangible things, but I really felt like, oh, if I can just like win this one thing, the world will change, you know, like the equivalent of I can change the environment if I recycle and mm -hmm. that's not possible, right? Like we can't undo the devastation of capitalism and colonialism by just recycling, which is not to say we don't also recycle, which is not to say we don't find tangible things that we need to do because we need practical things. Um, but for me, I actually found it way more defeating and deflating and demobilizing to be like, oh, what? Recycling didn't work. <laughs> like it didn't actually save the planet. Right. Um, so for me, I actually find some comfort in, you know, maybe comfort's the wrong word, but I find even as overwhelming as those threads are, um, for me, I'm like, okay, it's one big fucking knot, you know, like all these threads lead to a same place, not identical, but to this one thing. And instead of pulling only on the threads, if we can collectively figure out how to just like cut this knot open, right? Like unravel it all at once. Um, there's some comfort in that. So I, I don't, I know that a lot of, um, a lot of us feel legitimately overwhelmed by the immensity of it, but I think there's also something deeply, meaningfully empowering about that, right? That these systems that, that humans have made, not all humans, but certain humans have made, uh, we can undo, right? Like we can 
we can dismantle these systems, we can transform these systems. And if we address them at the root, we will get there, you know, we will get there. Um, and I feel a lot of um, optimism about that, you know, not in a way that's, you, you know, like, oh, yeah, we're going to do it tomorrow. I know it's a long haul. Um, but I feel optimistic that systems that have been created can be undone um, if we collectively struggle and we pull in the same direction. And so I think, you know, just even sitting with those things um, hopefully takes us somewhere because I think we're meant to be demobilized, right? Like the system wants us to not change it. The system wants, you know, Margaret Thatcher said there's no alternative. They want us to believe there's no alternative. Mm. And I think our collective imagination and uh, recognizing, you know, the present mm -hmm. as the future and the present possibilities as our future and the, the histories we've inherited as our future is a big part of that. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like the fact that both of, both of these books, um, don't you know you neither one of us neither one of them say you know kind of what it's going to look like mm -hmm. and this is how we're going to get there be you know both of both of these books you know top border and rule and we'll do this till we free us is are really this is what's happening mm -hmm. do the thing in front of you with the people who are with you and we will get there and it will look the way it looks when we get there because right now we, we don't know our imaginations you know, you, you both talk about this, you talk about this, uh, you, you know, our, our imaginations are contained by these borders that we're in. Mm. You, you know, when, when, when you were writing about, you know, these strangers, these ones who are made strange. And then of course, you know, like I went from there into, you know, into some, you know, where Miriam Cobb is talking about possibility. And, uh, you know, mm. that's part of it, like what you say, you know, these relationships, as we get to know, and we hear these stories, and we understand what's happening, we start connecting them, and then mm -hmm. we, you know, you know, kind of radicalize the people around us, you know, mm -hmm. and then, you know, because we all belong somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. We all have a church we go to, a book club mm -hmm. we're part of, a yoga class, the friends that we want, you know, people that we walk yeah. with after supper. We all have somebody we can mm -hmm. radicalize, you know, we can, mm -hmm. you know, we can share these, you know, we can share these mm -hmm. thoughts with. And I like, I think about my drum group, you know, this drum group that I belong to in Fort Erie. Mm -hmm you know, and just how it's, it's just the drum group, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's nothing, it's, it's not like this, you know, anti-racist, you, you know, organizing coalition. It's just a drum mm -hmm. group. It's just women who get together once a week, not since the pandemic, but you're, you know, you know, soon we'll be, we'll be able to get together again. And, and we sing and we share our lives mm -hmm. and we talk. And yet mm -hmm. this group has been so transformative for so many of the members in terms of how we then carry things into the broader community mm. and how we're able to make change like real changes in other things you know and and I think yeah. that's like you said that's all those, it's all those different threads and as we build these relationships and as strangers become familiar mm. we don't even have to be friends we don't have to be friends with everybody mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. but we can share a common vision of what a world, you know, you know, these, I love that. I'm going to have to find that about the Zapatistas and the many worlds. Mm. I really love that. It, and, and that's also yeah. less overwhelming. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, so another thing that the Zapatistas say is um, just to your, your point, Patty, is um, we make the path by walking. Yeah. We make the path by walking. Right. Which is like, how do exactly, as you said, how do we do that work? Um, and not shy away from doing it, you know, just by doing it, we'll figure out where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, Carrie and I just thought we were hilarious when we were start when we started this podcast. We didn't, yeah. <laughs> we didn't know this. We didn't know we were going to, you know, wind up here. And no, four years later or whatever. Is it four years? I don't even know, but we're still here. Still here. Well, you are hilarious. And your drum group is not just a drum group. And this podcast oh, is not just a podcast. I, I know. I know. What, I, just what I mean by that is it doesn't. No, I totally We always you. think of like it has to be this big spectacle. Yes. And it doesn't. It can be your yoga class. Mm. it can be a book club it can be mm -hmm. the people that you walk your dogs with 
Yeah. It can be these small, simple things that just combine with other small, simple things. And then suddenly you're, you know, suddenly you're defunding the police, you know, you're doing something. <laughs> my goodness, my mother is starting to come around to defunding the police. Yeah, <laughs> yeah these conversations matter. Yes. But that's where books, like you, like, you know, like you said, are not something that I, 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 I struggle with too. It's like, there's so mm. many other better books out there. Why am I putting another book? Well, because you yeah. signed the contract, so you have to. <laughs> 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 but sometimes a book gives you know a certain book gives you the right language mm -hmm, it gives you, you you know where this another book on the same topic didn't give you the language that you needed because mm -hmm. of the way you, you put ideas together and border and rule everybody needs to read this and listen to mm -hmm. it um thank you because you yeah. you give we got thank some you. yikes in the chats when in the chat when you were talking about fortress europe and outsourcing mm -hmm. You know that that was really powerful. That was one of the things that I knew mm. but hadn't really thought about mm. in this kind of broad, horrific way that mm. it exists. Um, well, you know, so yeah, so we got some yikes in the chat from people that were <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> we're the only comment in there. Yikes! <laughs> like, yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> and I was like, a, yeah, very. <laughs> you know, that it's like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, Arsha, through this conversation, you the book has been bought and will be delivered in about a week. That's what I'm seeing. June 19th. <laughs> It is the delivery date. Podcast is so expensive for Carrie. <laughs> if you see my book list, it's crazy. My book, my, all the books I've bought that are just sitting there waiting. To waiting. <laughs> but it's it's powerful because I think what you just said it brought back something that a friend of the broadcast of our podcast um, also mentioned. Because um, sometimes the work we do can be heavy, you know, mm. this, this can be overwhelming and in that space. And Tamari, Tamara, Tamara, Tamari Katosa um, mentioned to me, um, you know, I said, some days it just like, ugh. and he goes that it's that, ah, that, mm. that you are creating the effect in the world. Mm. It's the conversations it's the one-on-ones, mm -hmm. it's the sharing of our feelings and emotions that build those connections. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank both of you for giving me that reminder again, because mm -hmm. my, my, my 17 year old me that really wants to throw the tamper tantrum and, and, you know, you know, fight the power is mm -hmm. really strong. And, and you, you guys gave her a hug today mm. and let me know that I can anchor in again mm. and I appreciate both of you for that mm. thank you Carrie. you end mm. up you, your book ends in the in the most beautiful way and I'm just you, you know being mindful of the time um you, you know so your your book ends and, and I was I was I was looking for a quote and I was I had found some you know some good angry rabble rousing quotes because I you know got highlighter all through the book <laughs> and then I came across these words that were towards the end and they were just they're just so beautiful you, you write empires crumble capitalism is not inevitable gender is not biology whiteness is not immutable prisons are not escapable and borders are not natural law mm. and it's just mm. those are just such beautiful words of hope we just we forget these things mm. are not eternal. Rome mm -hmm. fell. Mm. Rome fell. This is Pride Month, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm reading Jesus and John mm -hmm. Wayne and, and <laughs> kind of the rise of, you, you know, the rise of opposition, um, you, you know, to queerness in, in all its mm. form. And it wasn't always like this. This is recent. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, this hatred of queerness is is new. It's not. It hasn't been, it's not like 2000 years of this. It's really not. Mm -hmm. And all of these things, like the Mi'kmaq have shirts older than the nation, than, than Canada. You know? mm. I think it's a friend of mine tweeted that out one day. We have shirts older mm -hmm. than Canada. <laughs> you know, prisons are just over 200 years old. The Quakers invented prisons. Mm -hmm. That blew my mind. If the Quakers can't get it right, then they just need to come down. <laughs> 
you know, so these things are not, they haven't been around forever and they're not going to be around forever. And we just keep doing what we're doing in the big and little ways that we are. And I just appreciate you so much. Oh, I appreciate both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And that, um, yeah, I, I hope that that conclusion, I mean, to the book, but really to all of our work, more importantly, is a way for us just to hold on to that, right? Because it is overwhelming. Like if we, you know, bearing witness and documenting and of course experiencing that daily violence is relentless. Um, and if we can find ways to each other, find ways to be with each other, hold each other and to, to create that transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, 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 uh, that anger that Carrie's talking about, right? Like, um, as we know, anger is, you know, is, is deeply generative and constructive, right? Depending on where it's turned towards. So to help to support each other, to, to turn that anger where it's, where it needs to be. You can find Medicine for the Resistance on Facebook and the website www.medforr.com. Don't forget to rate, share, and support us by buying us a coffee at www.ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can also support the podcast and so much more by going to patreon.com slash pay your rent. You can follow Patty on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S and at danish.ca, D-A-A-N-I-S dot C-A. You can follow Carrie at K-E-R-R-Y-O-S-C-I-T-Y, that's Curiosity, and find her online at kerrygoring.com. Our theme is fearless.